This episode of the Pursuit Podcast is presented by Fisher Skis. Yo, happy Wednesday. You're listening to the Pursuit Podcast on the Out of Collective. As always, I am your host, Mr. Adam X, at Mr. Adam X, Adam X. If you see me in the streets, just call me X. Fantastic episode today. I can't tell you who. Why would I tell you? Why would I tell you who it is? I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you waver for a moment. Now, get in the van, heading out west. Uh, as this episode is releasing, I'm probably in Chicago, but I will be out west for the next four weeks. So let's go skiing. Let's pow surf. Let's snowboard. Let's podcast. Uh, if you have a guest who lives somewhere out west and you think they should be on the show, let me know. Uh, let's make friends. This is the pursuit podcast let's make friends tour uh i've got hot dogs i've got pbjs let's have a good time before we get in the episode i've got to give a shout out to the people over at deuter i wouldn't be on this trip without my deuter bag i can't get enough of it i genuinely cannot get enough of this bag it is the best touring bag that i've ever used in my entire ski career am i calling it a career yeah i think i'm gonna call it a career it's my skiing career oh i didn't even tell you what the bag is yet guys haven't even told you it is the free rider pro i'm using the 34 plus it fits like a 30 very small great hip pack squeezes my little love handles perfectly but it's expandable, 10 liters expandable. So that 34 becomes a 10 liter. Great for short days, great for long days. It's phenomenal. Unbelievable. Check it out. Deuter.com. D-E-U-T-E-R. Lifetime guarantee. They'll fix it. If they can't fix it, they'll replace it. Honestly, one of the best bags I've ever used. If not, it is the best bag I've ever used. Who am I kidding? Uh, separate pouch for your skins. First aid, beacon, shovel, probe, pocket. We're not putting our beacon in there, but you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Uh, pack in the back for all your goodies. Love the bag. Freerider Pro 34 Plus. East Coast. I know I'm leaving. I just said I'm leaving, but Canon got eight inches in the last 24 hours. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing tomorrow. Call off work. Go to Canon. CanonMT.com. Go skiing. Wednesdays, if you live in New Hampshire, $45 lift tickets. You have to have a valid New Hampshire driver's license. Go there. Check it out. It's it's the legend of Canon. They have a tram. They have phenomenal skiing. Amazing terrain. 83 of 97 trails are open right now. Again, 8 inches of fresh snow go to canon okay let's get into this episode skiing legend i'm gonna say legend x games gold medalist griffin post big mountain skier been in 12 tgr films podiumed at plenty of free ski world tour events Powder Awards nominee, U.S. Extreme Free Skiing Champion. 
recently in Magic Hour. This guy's like, I mean, Edge of the Earth, HBO. He's basically the Nicolas Cage of the ski industry. He's a treasure hunter. He prefers Johnny Depp, but he's got a mustache, so we're going Nicolas Cage. Just a, like, if I could have a ski career, I'd want mine to be like Griffin Post. He's been doing it forever. He's a legend. And now he's joined up with Protect Our Winners on this phenomenal project that we talk about, about the Washburn Cash. It's just such a great episode. So Griffin, thank you. And I hope you guys all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Well, my name is Griffin Post. I'm a professional skier from Jackson, Wyoming. And yeah, I guess I've been in the industry for quite some time now. I think 15 years being a professional skier and different, you know, definitions of the word. And I, I was thinking about it on the drive home today from skiing and I still just really, really love skiing. Like I had so much fun today. We didn't do anything crazy, but the snow was good. And I was like, that was awesome. And so I'd say uh, above all, I somebody that just really loves skiing. It's funny because one of my questions later was going to be, do you still enjoy skiing? Yeah, I would be doing this for free for sure. Like, I, I, As most I was, people do. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was trying to think about it like on the – and this last trip I came back from and I was like, if I had gotten, you know, a normal office job or something like that, would I just be devoted, devoting every day off to skiing or every weekend to skiing? And I'm pretty sure I, I, I would be. <laughs> what? So let me ask you this. What would you be doing if you weren't skiing? And I know you have a, you, you still do marketing for Kesley, right? Yeah, Exactly. Let's take that out um, of it. What would you be doing if you didn't have a job in the ski industry? Um, I think I'd be pretty heavy into like the, I don't know, business world, so to speak. I, I got my MBA in the 2000s and I was kind of on the cusp of, you know, going into that life and just so happened that's when like my skiing also started to gain some traction. And so I, did not go down that road. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'd definitely be like business guy, if that makes sense. <laughs> business ethics. What, yeah. what was the break? <laughs> was it like, cause you did extreme free skiing, right? At Crested Butte and a couple of the other, that was like, a, that was a tour, right? That was a tour then. It's kind of what the free yeah, was, world tour is, right? Yeah. I feel like that event was independent, but essentially it was like the U S free skiing tour, which was for a couple of years, the free ride roll tour and the free skiing world tour were competing with each other. And, uh, it was during that time where I entered the crested butte U S extreme free skiing championships. And it's funny, my whole career almost came down or like almost didn't happen because of this clerical error at my first contest. I like went there and, you know, you have the qualifying day where you have to, you know, prove yourself if you don't have any, I don't know, name recognition, so to speak. And the qualifier is always tricky because you want to ski well, but you know, there's no reason to win. And so <laughs> I, I, I thought I skied pretty well, and I'd like spent my rent money on the contest, the entry fee for this contest. So I was like pretty 
committed to it and we go to the like the meeting where they give the awards for the qualifier day and they take 25 skiers and i'm number 26 and i'm just like so crushed i'm just like oh professional skiing dream over and just just bummed and at those events they used to give out the scorecard so you could kind of see where you got docked and so at the end of the meeting they give out these scorecards and i'm like i go through them and i'm doing some quick math and i'm like i think whoever like entered this into the excel sheet like hit the wrong number because i think i should be like four places higher i think i should be in like 22nd place instead of 26 or whatever and i bring this to the attention of the organizers and they're like yeah you're right we'll see you tomorrow like you're in i was like cool like professional skier skiing green <laughs> still alive and then i went on to win that contest and um started gaining traction from there and so it's funny to look back and wonder like had i not caught that error if my career would have ever happened or would i've just gone like down a totally different life path are you typically because that's kind of an extroverted moment so are you typically an extra, like to be, not to notice the error, but to be like, I'm going to say something. Cause some people just oh. walk away. Like, well, yeah. No, I'm, I'm painfully introverted. Um, and so that was, I had to muster that uh, courage to bring somebody else's mistake to their attention. And I'm definitely glad I did, but. And that was the kickstart. That, yeah. That was what like got everything going, I should guess. At what point did you think I can do this professionally? And because now you're, we're, we won't say numbers and age, but like you've been doing this for nearly twenty years. Yeah, which is wild. To <laughs> yeah, think right. Like, on. Um, I feel like my first couple of seasons in Snowbird when I was trying to, you know you're working in a tuning shop and you're trying to ski as much as you can and you'd ski with these pro skier or like maybe see them and see what they were doing. And then you would do something pretty similar to like what they were doing. And I think at that point I was like, you know, they're, if the bar is that high and I feel like I'm pretty, at least even with the bar, maybe there's a chance that we could make this work. But are are the sponsors flying? Are you sending in videos? Because you're a big mountain guy. Like that's kind of your bread and butter. And I feel like big mountain has gotten bigger in the last seven years than it was in the previous 13. And correct me if I'm wrong, but. No, you're totally right. And so even though I felt like I was, you know, meeting the standard the world really doesn't need another pro skier. Like all the teams are full. Like there's no, nobody, even, even though I thought winning this contest in Crested Butte was a big deal. And it was to me, it's not like the next day the sponsors were calling and being like, you're on the team. (laughs) And so it was, it was, it was, it was funny. I remember I sent these photos from that event to North face, like had them printed out like really nicely, like on these, whatever, eight by 11 inch uh, matte or gloss uh, photo paper. And I addressed it to like the North face attention sponsorships. <laughs> and I like 
had a cover letter, I think, in there too. And I sent it off and I was just kind of sat by the phone waiting for them to call. And I'm not sure what happened to those photos, but they did not call after that. Damn. Um, so it was, it was a lot of like grinding and just kind of proving that you were in it for the long run. And, um, you know, those years on the free skiing world tour and the free ride world tour were amazing. And you get such good experience and you meet so many really incredible people, but you're also living like pretty frugally and it's a little bit more romanticized, I think, than uh, a lot of people think it is. Yeah, it's like the worst. I mean this in the kindest way, but it's like the worst way to be a pro skier. Like the people, the kids on the free ride, we'll call them kids, on the free ride world tour right now, like, whew, like that, you just get your ass kicked. Like, and you have to, the show must go on is like how I always look at it. Like I worked events for years, Ironmans, marathons, cycling races, and I worked from the logistics side and like, there's people here, there's infrastructure and like, the course isn't usually amazing. <laughs> yeah, especially in those days when the, the weather window was far smaller. You'd have one weather day maybe. And I remember being in the starting gate and just like looking down. You know, some days it's refrozen, like coral reef. You're like, any other day I would not be skiing what I'm about to try to ski. But there are all these judges and I'm going to go for it. And it does make you a really good skier or it, it filters out the athletes, you know, pretty easily when the conditions are that bad, but it's also like, you know, that risk goes up that those injuries are far more likely under those conditions. And you really have to, I think, love it to go down that road. But do you just do that? to get to where you are now, like to get to those filming segments, to get to those, like, and I, I'm, this is a genuine question. Like, is that, do you think that there are people, or at least you can answer for you, or you can give an opinion on people on the free ride tour, like that gets your foot in the door. That is like, to me, you're busing at the fancy restaurant to like get to be a line cook. And then you like, then it goes from there. Absolutely. Um, and I can only speak to myself for myself, but when I was coming up, those contests were, yeah, building that street cred, so to speak, and trying to get the attention of sponsors with the ultimate goal of starting to film. Um, and I think it's still like a very worthy path. Um, if I had to do it over, I think I would be more on the filming side to begin with, just because that barrier to entry is so low now, just, you know, you have an iPhone or, or whatever, a GoPro and some friends, and you can go around and film each other. I think I would probably try to build a name for myself that way, or maybe in combination with the free ride world tour, but. It's interesting. It's changed a lot. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm 36. I'm so I'm where, I'm yeah. where you are. And it's, I feel I landed. I remember I landed a 900 in the park, horrible, like just spooled, you know. And it was yeah, on like yeah. this shitty flip phone, and I was like showing everyone the next day, like this is it. I'm like it's there, but like now these kids just have like 4K footage from their phone. 
hundred percent. And I'd be curious to like, I think the free ride, winning the free ride world tour is very worthy. And I'd be curious if the perception of the athletes on the tour now has, you know, changed. I mean, like, no, I don't want to film this winning this tour is, you know, the number one goal. Um, because for me, it was always that filming that like that next step where you're more, more in control of the conditions that you're skiing and what you're skiing versus being at the whim of mother nature and the event organizers. Yeah. You were stacking your resume to get to the level to be able to film, but it's It has changed a lot. There are kids in films. I call everyone kids. There are people in films that are, they've never done a competition in their life. They just put out YouTube's YouTube edits yeah. and people found them. And it's like, it's crazy how it's changed, but it's also made the content pool and the competition so much harder. Like a, a film is an hour, right? Hour and 20. Yeah. So like being in that content pool, being chosen is 10 times harder than it was. And it's just Maybe. as competitive. It's that same idea of like the world doesn't need another like pro skier, I think is still not to say not to discourage anybody, but, uh, but it's true. I don't think it's discouraging anybody. I think it's just, it's a reality. And the reality is 70%, maybe more of your favorite skiers probably have jobs. Like other Absolutely. jobs. <laughs> like, yeah. No, for, it's, there's a, it's a very small amount of people that are really making a living just off of skiing. Yeah. And if the, and the ones that don't have a job are just dirt bagging it and, that's cool too, but they're not, they're not these bougie Coors Light contracts that they once were, I think. <laughs> I know the Coors Light Mountain Dew days seem to have they've, gone by the wayside. Fizzled off. You do have an X Games gold medal. That's kind of cool for like a big mountain athlete. That doesn't happen often. Yeah, it's random. It's actually like have it as a coaster by my desk. Um, <laughs> not a coaster, I should. Um, yeah, that was through this team event. Um, I think they they put a bunch of different resorts against each other, and they had the entire season to make this edit. And so Jackson Hole put together all their athletes, and we filmed this segment. And I'm pretty sure Travis Rice basically carried the team on that. But as a result of being a part of that, I got an X Games gold medal. So it's a good uh, conversation piece, I guess. Well, it's always cool to me – when you talk to somebody who has an X games gold and how they got it. Cause like you think slope style, you think pipe you know, like, and then it's like, Oh, I was shovel racing like in 98 when the X games had shovel racing or like, Oh, it was a big real mountain competition. It's like, Oh, that's a cool X games medal. Yeah. And not saying like the down slope style isn't, but you know what I mean? shovel racing though i mean that was legit those yeah remember the x games had like those crossover events with like the downhill mountain biking yeah like this this just, on snow yeah which sean palmer won like everything the one year i think he yeah. won like the bike <laughs> he, like, he won downhill bike and then like slopes or not slope style the skier cross and then border cross yeah i think he was on performance enhancing drugs at the time but that's that's <laughs> another <laughs> That's he way before well, well decorated X Games yeah. editor. But the it was just the wild, wild west back then. East, whatever you want to call it. Like Jason Leventhal and he has an X Games medal, I think. Like a 
bronze or silver. Snowblades, right? Yeah. Skiboarding. Yeah. Like skiboarding. Sorry. Ski. It's a different sport. It is. <laughs> uh, I always love to see when like, I like, you know, I Googled you a little bit and I'm like, he's got a fucking, what does he have an X games for? Like, Oh, big mountain. That's, that's cool. Were you ever a rail guy? Did that ever interest you? Do you hit rails still to this day? It's been a moment since I've uh, hit a rail, but going to school in Denver, I got really into the park scene for a couple years and definitely, definitely spent a lot of time at the Keystone and Breck parks (laughs) and all those rails like Keystone used to have this big, like barbecue rainbow rail. Um, I'm not sure if they still have it. And just those, I think it was that time in that time of skiing where people would just weld these ridiculously long rails or complicated rails. And I'm not sure if anybody actually knew what they were doing. Yeah. But, um, that said it's, and I have this edit from that year. My friends and I made this film and it's my first ski movie segment from, it's pretty rough footage and, I have a couple rail shots in there that like down flat down at red rocks. I sort of, I made it look good enough for our purposes, but uh, yeah, that was probably the last time I stepped up to a rail. <laughs> was the barbecue rail, the one they always lit on fire that was in like every free skier mag for like ever. Yeah, exactly. Like okay. the area 51 train park. I yeah. think. <laughs> okay. Just confirming that that's, that's what it was. Can we expect yeah. a Griffin post park at it? anytime in the next five years i don't think you should hold your breath for that uh maybe i'll continue to release parts of that uh edit from college but that might be though every yeah i don't think i'd be doing anybody any favors going into the park i just at this miss point. it like i just want to see and like obviously you have it's like mitigating risk right but like i'm like waiting for michelle parker to like drop a park edit again just a fun one not like a high risk one but like just like a spring day in the park. I don't know. I think there's something there. It would be kind of hilarious to get a bunch of, I guess, or more veteran big mountain skiers in a, some sort of park contest. Um, although it'd be probably kind of embarrassing as well. There's, there's good reason not to do that. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> some truth to that. I think Michelle years ago put it on her story and she was like trying to teach Emily Harrington how to like slide a box. And it's like, here's like one of the like world's greatest climbers and like can barely slide up. It was so great for me. I was like, oh, you don't have to be good at everything. Or like Cody with the 50 project brings Alex Honnold. And I'm like, oh, I'm a better skier than him. Kind of like, (laughs) yeah, no, I think hands down here. (laughs) Right. But it was like, I just love seeing, I think I just like seeing people are really good at stuff struggle. So if you could put out a park at it, that might make me feel better. But your bad park is probably okay. the, my good park, to be I fair. I don't know. It's been, it's been a minute since uh had any park jumps. Actually, I usually take a few laps late in the day at some point in, during the season where when I think it's cleared out and I'm not going to recognize anybody and I'll like go through and. Yeah, you got, you have eyes on like, you now. Yeah, I'm like, who's this guy hitting the park jumps with a backpack on? Like, what? Oh, that was last week, two weeks, whenever I was at Jackson, I was skiing with uh, Corey Jackson and Carl Fostad. 
and they were hitting the jumps and just throwing down. And I was like hitting them and doing like Cossacks. So like people were hyped and then they were just like disappointed as I was like the last Like, guy. Was that their filmer? I don't know who that <laughs> like, was. <laughs> just some fan just chasing them around. But I felt yeah. the eyes. They weren't on me, but they were just like, oh, this guy's probably with them and good. So I did feel the disappointment in the children. You're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> like, like we gave you two. So I don't know. What is this OCD thing? Are you actually OCD? Do you just claim OCD? Or is it just like when it comes to skiing and being like how to make the perfect run? Or is this in daily life? Or is this too personal? I mean, you put it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> no, I would. Uh, I feel bad saying that I'm OCD and not being OCD. So maybe that's uh, not the best term to throw around but i am incredibly superstitious i'm not sure where that line is but as far as skiing goes it's like if i have a good day i have to the next day i have to do everything the same like i have to wear this you know same socks put the boots on the same order like drive to the mountain the same way (laughs) and for like for years i couldn't wear matching ski socks because i thought i skied poorly when my socks matched and so I'd, every day I'd put on two different ski socks, which made laundry way easier. I never had to pair up socks. I'm just being like frustrated if they matched, but um, I have since like kind of worked it through that certain superstition, but it's like a lot of just small things about, I know, like if I say something that I'm a work, like instead of knocking on wood, if I say something, bad or i think something bad's gonna happen i have to like touch my head and yeah i mean it's a it's a wild ride up there in the brain in my brain well and on the mountain like it's not like you're doing like you're not just skiing groomers every day like you're skiing a lot of no fall zones so like whatever works and whatever it takes is kind of like but it sounds like you're just a creature of habit which i think we all are in some way yeah, and those habits might, you know, be a little bit counterproductive sometimes. I feel like talking about skiing lines, the I have this thing where I have to start my GoPro right before I drop, like between the 10-second call and the 3-2-1, and I can never remember if it's on or not. And so, so I'm sure a lot of people are aware if you're just hammering your GoPro button, like it doesn't like that. And so the like, I end up getting like a time lapse or just <laughs> a single photo of me on top of the line, and I need to. And that's another one I need to really work through and like, figure out because that's kind of detrimental to my career not having that GoPro footage because I've spazzed out on top of the line. When you when you drop in, do you always do you make a left or a right turn? Um. I would say whatever the terrain dictates. Okay. Um, and I'd say like another thing I do on top of the line is, which might sound weird, but I envision like every worst case scenario, like everything that could go wrong and like how I would handle that, which is weird to put that energy out right before you drop. But if the first time you're thinking of something happening it's when it's actually happening, you don't really have a plan. And so I kind of make this game 
before I drop in and like, well, what if that cornice falls and like the whole slope slides, like, where am I going to go? Or, but I think I that's know, just I, part of being a great big mountain skier. Right. Or do you think of like always worst case scenario, as far as not even snow conditions, like just you crumbling. Cause I feel like that could be bad. Yeah. I keep it realistic. Um, but from snow conditions to like, what if my ski just falls off on the second turn? <laughs> or what if I just totally forget how to ski? Like, Are you ever nervous uh, that you won't like skiing? That's my fear every like year. I, I feel like I've made it this far and I still love it just as much as when I was a little kid. And so I, I don't see that happening. I think that'd be a very brutal you know, awakening if one day I was just like, just lost it. Um, and I think I'd probably change lifestyles pretty quickly, but so far so good. That's always my fear every year. I'm like, what if I don't like this? Like I've just invested like my whole summer into like getting new shit and, you know, doing the whole thing and talking about it. And then, but then I put skis on and I'm like, okay, I still like this. And then yeah, midwinter, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, having fun on those early season days and, like, that's a really big, like, part of it. It's, of course, a powder day, like a day like today is really fun and that's what you strive for. But you got to be able to have a good time when it's, like, hard pack and you're just skiing one run and walk away and being like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. Like, we went skiing today. That was great. Oh, it's grass at home right now. Like it's the worst I've ever seen the East Coast in my entire life. Like it just hasn't so, turned out. And I think more than anybody, those East Coast skiers love are masters of that, of like having the best time under the You have to. Maybe not ideal conditions. Yeah. I feel like everybody in the West is a little bit jaded and they need you know, I would only snow a few inches, blah, blah, blah. And you're like no, like you gotta, you gotta love that too. <laughs> yeah. You have to love it all. And it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, you know, I went riding yesterday and my buddy was like, I think you just ride here too much. And I was like, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> like, and just, I'm realistic. Like this sucks, but I'm happy we have it and it's happening because it should, everything's man-made. Like the woods are bare, Yeah, like completely bare. It's just nuts. It just is, just is what it is. I don't know. I think yeah. you just have and to I'll, love it. On the flip side of that too, it's okay not to have like a great time every every time you go out. Like if you're not feeling it, like that's totally fine. You shouldn't feel bad about like oh, I should love this because it's so amazing. Like if you're not having a good day, if you're not feeling it, it's like you listen to your body and you go do something else or change up your program. Um, I just go hit rail. Yeah, just don't. Yeah, exactly. That's like, well, <laughs> it's, it's 45 and sunny on February 16th, so I guess we're going to hit rails today. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is what it is. I got to talk about Hillbilly Bob, right? That's what, that's the name of the line? Oh, um, in Cordoba. Yeah. It's Hillbilly Bob, yeah. right? We've So we've gone back and forth between Detention Center and Hillbilly Bob. I think it's Hillbilly Bob, but... I, I am aware of the uh, line you're referring to. <laughs> I think I would. Well, I would. Wouldn't be shocked if you don't remember it. Honestly, 
Can I ask what happened? Because you... You completely slaughtered the spine. Like, it was like poetry in motion. And then once you got, like, past the spine, you just straight-lined it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was a pretty rookie mistake as far as Alaska goes. We'd been skiing a bunch. This was towards the end of the trip. I was feeling really confident in my skiing. I didn't give this line enough time or respect when we looked at it. We kind of landed, glanced at it. It looked really straightforward and was like, yep, no problem. And to your point, like the line itself went really well. It's this beautiful spine and like really fun, but also not very like, I don't know, in my mind's eye, not that aesthetic or not that film worthy. And then, you know, afterwards you see the shot and you're like, oh, that was it looked really good. It looked great. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll spice this up. I'll just straight line out the bottom. And, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is just changing your plan midway down a line, having not really thought it through. Because once once I started straight lining, there's really only one. There's no outs. No. It's like there's, there's only one thing that can happen. It's like either – or two things that can happen. <laughs> like either I make it to the bottom and I run out of, uh, you know, speed in the flats or I tomahawk somewhere. And I remember I hit this threshold where I was going so fast that I felt like it was more dangerous to try to stop. Cause the snow was pretty like chundery and like some refrozen roller balls. And I was kind of above this Bergschrund and it definitely crossed my mind. I'm like, well, I could try to pull out, but I almost pumped almost positive i'm going to tomahawk if i pull out so we'll just try to straight line and i knew there's this other berg shred trend coming up and i could see it and like i remember just my head bouncing like going so fast and then i think i tried to make some sort of move over this thing and basically berg trend is like or that berg trend is this tiny crevasse that it's probably like a five or six foot drop with a with different like slope angles so the top was a little bit steeper than the, the bottom the landing and i remember i like flew off that thing and i was going so fast i could feel like the wind just take my skis and like push them back towards my face i'm like this is not good and i've never had that big alaska crash that i feel like is kind of a rite of passage and i was like this is definitely that big alaska crash and i like just you know tumble ski goes like flying off michelle parker has this this iphone video from the bottom and my ski shoots like 60 feet into the air and i like come to and i'm like cool i'm, I'm conscious so that's it's a plus like <laughs> didn't knock myself out my shoulder is like just super just doesn't feel right i've never had shoulder issues and i like hike up get all my gear and like ski down and uh our guide skis up to me and, and i'm like kind of sitting like this like or sitting with my shoulder it was dislocated I, i'd find out in like a minute later and he's <laughs> like is your shoulder dislocated and i'm like i don't know i've never dislocated my shoulder and he's like all right he kind of does some tests and really just gets me to relax and like find you like let your body kind of you know as much adrenaline 
as it's pumping through you, like you kind of just need to calm down. And as soon as I like calmed down and relaxed, my shoulder like went back into the socket. And I was like, all in all for like how bad the crash could have been, like I got out pretty unscathed. Um, yeah, the body's pretty amazing in that aspect. Yeah. Um, I think watching it, I think if you would have tried to stop, it would have been worse. That's that's why I tell myself too. I'm like, <laughs> that was that was the better call because at least you're like, you know, when you crash like that. I know when you when you're trying to stop, you end up like kind of high siding. Exactly. You, you you start tumbling in really weird ways, whereas that you're falling more fall line. The trade off there is like when you crash on relatively flat ground or you go from steep to flat, it's just so much more impact and force as you're tumbling. I think that's definitely what caused my shoulder to go out. Yeah. But if you would have tried to stop up top, you would have tumbled twice as long. You would, I don't know. I mean, it's all so. All right. It's good to know that you changed your plan. Like that makes me feel better that you were like, I mean, not that my opinion matters, but it does that you, (laughs) that you were like, okay, I skied this line. I don't think it looks that cool. My job is to make shit look cool. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And that's all happening in real time. Yeah. It was very poor reasoning, but that, that was my thought. Yeah. But I like that reasoning. (laughs) Yeah. But the line, uh, the line is great. Like that line itself, if they didn't even show the crash would have made the cut. Like that was the line. Yeah, absolutely. Technically the runout wasn't the line. And there's always a difference between how something feels when you ski it and how something looks on film. And I think that was a really good example of, you know, something that looks really good on film, but not necessarily like feels the scariest or like gnarliest line. Are you, are you a person who's typically extremely hard on themselves about the way you ski it? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of, odd for the career i've chosen like watching myself ski is not my favorite thing no i'm always like oh i could have done that better or like like sage would have done like that on this line or (laughs) i'm i'm so critical and it's rare it's probably like a handful of shots throughout my career where i'm like yeah that was the best way to ski it (laughs) but for the most part i'm yeah just my own worst critic or own harsh. <laughs> I'm yeah. Yeah. I know you're my your harshest critic. Yeah. You're your biggest critic. Yeah. Does it help filming with TGR for how many TGR films have you been in? 10, I think 12 10 plus. So. Okay. So 12, yeah. does it get easier knowing that your crew probably won't lie to you? Like if they're like, dude, you got the shot. Does that help you? Um, I would say, you know, when you get that A plus shot and it's self-evident, you're like, yeah, that was a good shot. But there's a lot of shots that kind of fall in between like, oh, that was pretty good, but we'll see how much time we have for the segment, (laughs) which is a weird way to look at it. But um, I feel like I'm a pretty good judge at this point as well of like what's film whether film worthy of what's gonna make the movie and what's gonna be on the floor and um 
which is a good skill to have, not from like a, a critical standpoint, but on the days where you're just kind of scratching and you know the snow's not that good or it's not really, everything's not coming together to not force it on those days because that's how you tire yourself out and also how you, you know, sometimes get hurt because you're trying to create something from nothing. And there are a few athletes that are really good at that, but for the most part, it's, it's better, I think, to save your energy and your motivation for the good days versus doing something sketchy on a subpar day. Do you feel that comes with time because you have less to prove versus like a young gun, you get invited once and you have to throw down or do you, were you always smart at mitigating risk oh no it came with age for sure (laughs) or just experience um early on you're kind of scratching you're filming every single day and you're working really hard and there's something to be said for that because it shows everybody that you, you can show up and you can hustle and you can go for you know filming 10 days in a row and you can make that happen because that's a big part of it as well um but now I guess I, I'm just more of a realist as far as if things are working or not. And recognizing how much those stretches, when you do film 10 days in a row, kind of wear you down. And then on the 11th day, maybe it's really good and conditions are perfect, but you're so tired and worn out that you can't really ski as well as you might have been able to. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a nice luxury to be able to be in a position to be able to pull back a little bit because not everyone can as far as their position in the ski industry. Absolutely. And I think one of my best learning lessons in the whole filming experience was going out. I was lucky enough on my first year to go to Alaska and I was with like Seth Morrison, Sage, Ian McIntosh like this really hard-hitting crew and I think somebody had dropped out of the trip and they called me last minute (laughs) and they're like hey do you want to go to Alaska and I'm like yes is the answer and they're like cool can you leave tomorrow morning and I was like maybe and I'm like who's the crew and they the producer like listed off those names and I was like oh my gosh it's like I've literally had a poster of Seth and my like yeah you and everyone like little quick interruption in the episode guys got a brand new sponsor brand new out of collective partner Pomoka Pomoka skins I know you guys might think they're for schemos they're not they're for us us humans us free riders I'm using that free pro 2.0 it's the best climbing and gliding skin I've ever used Genuinely, they're lightweight, they glide, they're light, and they're pink. I put them all in my in my bib. I love them so much. Go to pomoka.com, P-O-M-O-C-A.com. Look, they have a fi- they have a skin finder. Which one works for you? Why you'd want that skin over another skin? I'm telling you, every schemo in America and North or and Europe uses Pomoka, there's a reason. Cody Townsend's using Pomokas. There's a reason. Free Pro 2.0. Check them out, pomoka.com. 
And now for my final sponsor of this episode. Mammut, mammut.com. It's avalanche season. Unfortunately, it's spring. We're getting heavy snows, getting a ton of snow. Do not go into the backcountry without the proper gear and proper knowledge. Berryvox, probe, shovel, go get them at mammut.com. If you want a code, DM me. I'll give you a code. They've got a whole little avalanche equipment set on there. And here's the thing. Get the equipment and learn how to use it. That's the most important part. It's not just owning the equipment. It's knowing how to use it. The Berrybox sets the standard in avalanche beacons. Super simple. It's intuitive. And the idea is that we can find our friends faster and easier. Head on over to mammoth.com. DM me for a code. Back to the episode. And so I go up there and I'm like just so nervous. And the way the trip was playing out, it's like we had these weather windows and Seth and I were leaving first. And so it, we would like, it was never bluebird be like, Oh, we can window shop. So we'll just send the two athletes out who are going home first and see if they can get anything done. And I'm like in this helicopter with Seth Morrison looking at him and I'm like, Oh my, and he's a pretty like standoffish guy if he doesn't know you. And he hasn't said a, really a word to me the entire <laughs> trip. I'm just so intimidated. And we get to this zone and we're looking at this face and I'm like looking at the biggest feature on the face. Like, Oh yeah, this is my chance. And I like, look at Seth. I'm like, what are you, what are you thinking, man? You cool? <laughs> like, <laughs> and he, he's like, Oh, I, I'm just going to ski down the gut. Like, yeah, that QR far left. I'm just going to make turns down that. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, today's not the day. It's, you know, the weather's not good. The snow's, don't know what the snow's doing. Like, it's not the day to risk it. And I was like, right, right, right. <laughs> so I'm not going to, like, punch it off that giant cliff. <laughs> and that was such a good lesson, though, because it was like, all right, this is this veteran in the ski world, this guy I really respect. And he's not out there every day, like, charging. He waits for everything to line up. And that only that might only be one one or two days a year, but he's patient and he knows that when it is perfect, then it's time to go. And so I don't know if it's as much about, I know you're where you, where you are in the pecking order in the ski world, or just like having that patience and like knowing that you can rise to the occasion when the conditions are really good. But I think that was probably the most valuable piece of advice that I get. I've gotten my career. Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't put myself in those shoes because I get the, all right, I'm going for that. And then, I mean, thankfully he said that to you to just like chill out. It'll show itself. And when it does, you, I think the key is when it does, you have to perform. You have to be ready to perform. And have that confidence that even though you haven't skied anything gnarly and so like maybe a week or 10 days that when you put your skis on you're still going to be that same skier as you always have been yeah i don't it's not for me i tell you that i am not i might be a photo skier like if you get a good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's hard because it's like 
there is that pressure and there is that, you know, you really want to show what you can do. And that ability to back down, I think is very underappreciated or, um, you know, it's not celebrated the, the way it should be. Yeah. And I think that's with anything like there's power and no, I've said no to so many things. Yeah. My friend and I were talking about it today just because we have very similar risk tolerances. And if he's not, you know, we ski together a lot and he, if he's not feeling a line for any reason, and I'm the same way, if I'm just like, Nope, my gut's telling me we shouldn't do this. He listens. He's like, yep. All right, cool. We're out of here. Yeah. There's no fighting it. Yeah. I think that's, the biggest luxury of being a pro skier is knowing that, okay, it's not good today. I can come back tomorrow and ski it, or I can come back another day, or there's going to be another line that's like this. And I can turn around and know that this isn't like the end. This isn't the one shot. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do, even if you're just, I don't know, a recreational skier like that, you know, on that, if it's a Sunday and you're on top of this line, that looks really good. Like, it's not like you can come back Monday and ski it. It's like, well, you don't right. know what it's going to be like next weekend. It's like that pressures. It's as simple as Corbett's, right? Totally. Like people put that on a pedestal. They see it all year. They're like, I'm going in February. I'm going to drop it. There's days that Corbett's is okay. Yeah. And then there's days where it's horrible. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's not like rock climbing or something where if you've a 5.11 or 11A, it's an 11A pretty <laughs> yeah, much today, every tomorrow. single day. Like, it's, it's not going to be like, oh, yeah, that day was really easy. It's uh, skiing so subjective like that. Yeah, I like that you said you have the luxury to, to, to do it differently or do it the next day or whatever. Because a lot of people don't. I think a lot of recreational skiers don't get that luxury so it's but like i don't know we're just skiing and like yeah 99 of us aren't getting paid so like we still have to show up to work on monday and we still have to do our thing so like going home should always be the most important thing but but in the moment it's really hard to do sometimes and yeah it's hard it's hard it's failing like I always say mountain, like the best mountaineers are the best failures because they fail all the time. Absolutely. Like they just yeah. fail. And being comfortable with that. And, you know, we don't celebrate those uh, turnarounds the way that we should. I, I always tell people if the film was like an accurate representation of the ski season, it'd be like 45 minutes of us turning around, 10 minutes of like, kind of B grade footage than like three minutes of (laughs) really good skiing and then the credits and then the credits. Well, it's like, have you seen K2 with Adrian? It's Adrian Renan. I don't remember who else. I think it's Adrian Ballinger and Renan. And um, it does a really good job because they get like a hundred yards from the summit and they turn around. And you're yeah. like, like you can see, like it's a, it's a football field away, like, yeah, and like you gotta turn around, 
It's crazy. It's like it's so it's a cinematic masterpiece of failure. And then there's you know obviously they get it at the end, but it's like that's you might not if they would have went they wouldn't have had the chance to get it later because they'd be dead. Yeah, like it's crazy. It's just <laughs> let's talk about. And it's I mean, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say it's you know you rarely get confirmation on turning around either. It's oh. it's not like oh we turned around and the whole thing slid twenty minutes later. Like yeah. One out of you know, rarely you'll get that um, confirmation from the mountains, but for the most part, you just have to sit there and wonder. Yeah, what um, did it do, or what was yeah. it going to do? I want to talk about HBO getting into the ski industry because I love this so much. <laughs> um, it's all TGR, right? Like you guys, it's your same crew. It just got put on the HBO platform, the edge of the earth. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think probably like 2019 or 2020, pre-COVID, TGR pitched this series to HBO um, based around, I think originally it was like there was, it was skiing, surfing, climbing, mountain biking might have been in there originally. Um, it was kind of carte blanche, like, as far as adventure sports go. And one of the producers came to me to talk about, you know, just because I know people in the climbing and kayak world and other outdoor spaces, just to try to pitch some ideas to them as far as like, you know, if you had carte blanche to go wherever you wanted, or these athletes had that, like, where would they go? Which is a pretty cool project to be a part of. And so obviously I was really involved in the ski side of things, but also helped put the pieces together for the climbing and the kayak one, just talking to Emily and then uh, Ben Stokesbury on the kayak side. And it's been like, so is there anything you've always wanted to do, but just thought it was too logistically complicated, which is as an athlete, like that's the dream phone call. Right. Like, yeah. I have, I have like, personally I have this list, like my Google earth drive is going to run out of like <laughs> pin storage because I have so many different like, places I want to go. And so that was kind of the start of developing this edge of the earth series. And then of course COVID hit and we went from, I think our trip to Alaska was actually like plan F. We went from like <laughs> China to Nepal, to Patagonia, to Antarctica, to BC. And finally it was like Alaska was, you know, um, the bet, the place we landed on. What would you have done differently if you could do it again? You know, it's, it's funny having done so many of these trips or expeditions, there's some trips you come back from and you're like, whether it's the crew or the objective or something, you're just like, I would have changed this, this, and this. But coming back from that trip, I remember the boat pulled into Juneau and we all just sat on it. Like nobody really got off at first. And the captain was like, are you guys going to leave? And, <laughs> you know, the crew was so good. The expedition was so good. It was successful. The skiing was good. And there's, it's not always like that. It's not always, sometimes you get to the airport and you're like later. Um, yeah. Group <laughs> dynamics are hard, especially in survival yeah. type situations. 
but everybody just crushed it so hard that trip that it was pretty like we didn't want to say goodbye which is uh i wonder if the kayakers uh, felt like that i don't know all their names but like i still go ahead uh, i agree i uh i would like the full debrief with the kayak crew because there seemed like we were i'm sure it's all relative but watching their episode i was like whoa no way really yeah most of the time i watch stuff and i was like i would go suffer like i'd yeah i would do some of that i would like go to base camp and cook that i was like i don't want to be anywhere near that project like that was an insane undertaking yeah and just like the i don't know if maybe it's just part of that you know, wrist tolerance in doing something like that. We're like, Oh, we're just going to send it down this gorge. We have no idea what's down there and we're going to figure it out. Like that's just a different mind state than I think a lot of like expeditions on the ski and snowboard side thing are. Yeah. I wonder if they feel like you guys are insane. I know. I like, I I wonder if it's just relative, like, Oh, that was, that was, you know, just how it goes. And they're like, but you guys were stuck in the storm. That was like, yeah, but we were in a tent and staying in the same location. Like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. That was the kayak was like one of the most stressful things I've watched recently that and like 13 lives. It's like, these are the same. (laughs) Like they're not, Yeah, they're just like, I had to watch like a a decompression episode of the office after that. Yeah. I just need to like take my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Kayak sales are not going up after that. (laughs) (laughs) no one's getting into this sport oh my god all right do you want to be called the johnny depp or nicholas cage of the ski industry and i think you know where i'm going with this (laughs) i'm gonna go with uh yeah johnny depp probably (laughs) (laughs) i figured that would be your answer but i was hoping you were gonna go national treasure nicholas cage what okay Bradford Washburn, Robert Bates, they're on a mission. They can't, they're on a photography mission. What is their mission? So in 1937, Bradford Washburn and Robert Bates tried to make the first ascent of the highest unclimbed peak in North America at the time, Mount Lucania. Um, it's this remote peak in the Yukon. And they'd shuttled a bunch of gear in with their pilot, Bob uh, Reeves. And when they went in to actually, you know, start this expedition, the plane immediately got stuck for like five days and they finally got the plane unstuck and Washburn and Bates had this decision. They were either could go out with the pilot or and bail on the expedition or stick to the course, try to climb this peak and walk out into Canada. And they, they chose the latter. And it's this incredible survival story. They make the first ascent of Mount Lucania, the second ascent of Mount Steele, and then walk out to Burwash Landing in the Yukon. But in the process, they left behind like 900 pounds of gear, including two, or um, including Washburn's cameras. And Washburn would go on to be, live this amazing life, this you know, world-renowned photographer. He's responsible for documenting a lot of the peaks of 
BC, Yukon, and Alaska, Random Museum of Science. Anyway, they left this gear on the glacier in 1937, <laughs> and nobody had, they never went back for it, and nobody had ever found it. And that's where my idea comes in. <laughs> and I, go ahead, go ahead. This is yours. This is your floor right yeah. now. So I read this book. This is all documented in Escape from Lucania. It's a great adventure read by David Roberts. And in the epilogue of the book, Roberts and Washburn fly over this area in like 2002. And Washburn talks about like how they should go back and look for their his cameras and this gear cache. And he like it's like we you know what we should do is like land on the glacier, walk down this moraine, and you know try to find our stuff. And Roberts goes on to elaborate that no climbing party has ever reported finding the skier cache, but the most likely place that it is is probably in the bottom of this bottom of a crevasse because he's looking down on the glacier and it's just all sorts of crevasses and i read that paragraph and it just like it just stuck with me and it's like well yeah it most likely probably isn't a crevasse but what if it's not and what if these cameras and this gear cache could be located what if it's just a matter of talking to the right people and you know looking and <laughs> I like, I was like, all right, first thing I need to try to figure out where they were originally camped. And I like line up a couple different photos of um, the gear cache, one with Mount Logan in the background, one with this like kind of lower flank of Mount Lucania in the background. And I put this pin on my map. One of my many pins, it's like lost camera. <laughs> it's like, Possible. Um, and it just kind of sits there for like six months or a year. And in the back of my mind, I'm just like, man, I wonder if that's, I just like couldn't stop thinking about it. And I kind of finally came to the conclusion that like, yeah, you're most like, most likely it's in a crevasse and it's gone. But the risk of being right and not going was far greater than the risk of being wrong and going, um, you know, there's a lot of great historic archival footage from that expedition, but like when the plane got stuck, there's a lot of photos uh, of Washburns to replicate. There's this climate change story and it's in this on the world's largest nonpolar ice cap. And I'm like, all right, even if we don't find it, like this is going to be a really cool story. And so I really just went into it head first and started cold emailing glaciologists and like trying to fund this expedition because um, we wanted to ski and snowboard uh, snowboard obviously that was the whole excuse for going out there um, and I reached out to these glaciologists at the University of Ottawa and they I basically got two responses through this whole process it was either you're crazy or you're crazy but we're kind of into it and this head of the glaciology department at University of Ottawa was like, yeah, I'll, I'll help you with this. And so we zoomed a little bit. I sent him some coordinates. He made, he made me this map of where he, or one of his PhD students made this map of where they thought it would have moved to because they've studied the glaciers quite a bit in that area. And they sent this map back to me. And I was like, this is pretty much a treasure map. <laughs> and, you, you know, we still needed to fund this and like get this project off the ground. So we, 
I was able to get a grant from Protect Our Winters and then Sierra Nevada Brewing Company stepped up to support the other portion of the project. And yeah. Hell yeah. Cheers. I, uh, <laughs> cheers. Um, I started reaching out to, you know, people that I thought would make a good fit for this trip. And so I hit up Jeremy Jones and Robin Van Ginn and they're like, yeah, this, you know, Oh, one important piece of this, there is some amazing riding in that area. And <laughs> right, I, I sent one, one photo to, I was trying to get a hold of Jeremy and I was like, Hey man, I want to talk to you about this trip. And then finally I sent him a photo of this mountain and he had, like hadn't been getting back to me. I sent this picture and he's like, okay, you have my attention. <laughs> and so, and, and then Robin was just like down. Robin's amazing and just gung ho for whatever uh, adventure or whatever uh, is out there really. She's just great enthusiasm for trying new things. And in the end of April, I guess, you know, we started this project trying to find the, this camera. Um, I feel like this trying to pick out the, the, the key points because I could probably talk, talk for like an hour about this alone. <laughs> well, there's a full film coming out about it yeah. as well. We'll get to there too, but keep going. Cause I think people care about this. I think it's like, and I love it cause it's a, it's evolution of our sport. Like we can't just do ski porn forever. I yeah. Mean, I guess we could, it was just a, a, but it, it was a different story and that's what attracted it. To, that's what really resonated with me. It's like capturing kind of a history buff or like, especially classic mountaineering literature. It's like, there's history, there's science, there's adventure. And so I was like, this is, this is a good idea. And so, <laughs> and so in April, we fly into Kalani National Park and Reserve at the base of this amazingly aesthetic peak that just rises like the shark's fin out of the sea of ice. It's one of the prettiest mountains I think I've ever seen. And we're just base camp there. We spend 10, 12 days skiing and riding, make these, you know, pretty memorable first what we presume are like first descents um and if it were just a ski and snowboard trip we would have knocked it out of the park like that segment would be amazing it was beautiful the riding wasn't great but it wasn't horrible it's kind of alpine variable and and we like <laughs> the one like caveat that i didn't totally tell jeremy and robin about was like this beautiful peak was actually 35 miles away from the where they were camped originally or where we thought the gear cache was and then it was going to be another 20 miles or so back to where the plane could pick us up <laughs> and and so we had a lot of walking ahead of us and we we kind of checked the box as far as the skiing and snowboarding went and we started walking and it took us about five days or four days to cover the 35 miles to where we're close enough to search their original or where where the scientists thought this had ended up and our, the whole time you're walking you're like yeah we've done our research like we're gonna we're gonna find it we're gonna be the, we're gonna be the people do like, you actually go to... think you're gonna find it at this time we thought i was 
I gave like 30% chance maybe. Okay. <laughs> but when you're, wa- you're walking that far, you kind of got to like hype yourself. Yeah. Up yeah. Be like, yeah, this is a good idea. Like, even though it's winter, you know, we chose to go back in the winter because the, not only the skiing, skiing and snowboarding, but traveling on the glacier was far safer than in the summer, springtime. And we're also kind of hoping that th- this Marine that Washburn had referred to would be melted out enough that maybe we would get lucky and see, see something um because the cameras are definitely the prize but they left 900 some pounds of gear so you know the fact the odds of something sticking through the snow weren't the worst (laughs) and so i mean they're pretty low but they're not zero (laughs) i can't find my my airpods yeah no that's that was my joke on the trip like i'm never gonna complain about losing my keys again (laughs) and so you know, you hype yourself up and the big day comes and based on weather, we were only going to have about eight hours to look for this camera or this gear cache. And as excited as you are, you walk into the valley on the Walsh Glacier and you see how big the search area is. And you're just like, there's no way there. And there's so many nooks and crannies and crevasses and places it could be hiding. And you're like, there's like, this is a, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> like, I like that you allocated like eight days to ski and eight hours to find this thing. Originally, we, <laughs> we wanted more time to search the area, but it was the way the weather was coming in and the amount of food we had and just the speed that we we're traveling at kind of limited the amount of time we had to search. Um, I mean, I wanted to be there far longer, but truth be told, we were, if we didn't get out in this next weather window, the storm was going to roll in. And we, I mean, we had enough food, but a two week storm up there isn't unheard of. Yeah. So, you're right. You're stuck. You're completely trapped. Yeah, we wanted and now to be, you're surviving. Yeah. We wanted to not end up like Washburn and Bates and hiking out into Canada. So, right. Um, we so we're in this massive valley and we start walking there's eight of us with the production crew and safety and you know at that point everybody's a set of eyes everybody's an asset as far as looking looking for things and our goal is to make it to their original base camp so we can even if we don't find it we can line up the or like maybe give the scientists more precise gps coordinates because we have this idea to go back in the summer and what starts as eight of us drops to six and then to four and then it's just two of us just robin and i walking up this moraine towards their original camp looking you know you'd come around like a big boulder and you'd look under it and of course <laughs> nothing was there and it gets it's like seven thirty at night and then it's like eight o'clock and robin's like dude it's kind of time to turn around and I was like, let's just go a little bit further. And she's like, okay, a little bit further. And we go a little further. And I was like, let's just go, you know, over that next little, to the next rock. And she's like, you promise this is the end? Like, we're going to turn around at that rock? I was like, yeah, I mostly promise that we'll turn around at the rock. And finally gets to like 8.30. We have 15 miles to walk back to camp, 20 miles to walk the next day to pick up this plane or get the plane pick up. And Robin looks at me and she's just like, dude, it's time to go home. 
this is she gives me this like really big hug and she's like this is a great adventure this is a great idea but we need to go home and i've like so much love and respect for her for sticking it out with me to the end and you know she was right i probably would have like kept walking around all night um we, we went home and as much as you know that it's unlikely that you're going to find it and the whole time i'm you know writing my like i'm a big journaler and i'm writing you know successes in the effort successes in the effort over and over again and you get home and you leave and you're like no that wasn't success like there was a clear pass fail moment on that trip and we failed and i was just like kind of shelled i was like spent so much of my life on this kind of half-baked as half-baked as it was it was still my idea it was like my baby and i was like yep that was failure and on top of all this like two days usually after these trips you get this like a decompression window where you're like no you, you come down and you're like kind of bummed out or it's like post trip blues and i'm dealing with that this sense of failure and then this the producer from tgr is calling me it's like when are we going back what, what are the next steps and i'm just like sloughing them off i'm like dude i can't talk about this i'm just like bummed and so i go on this like road trip to tahoe and like ski and then visit some friends in oregon and i'm like driving back to jackson across southern idaho and i see this music store on the side of the road and i was like you know what i've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar <laughs> pull in a, like screw this pro skiing stuff i'm gonna be a rock star like, full yeah. midlife crisis mode and i like <laughs> walk in and it's, it's old shop owner is like what are you looking for and like hey i've never played the guitar i don't need something really nice but i also don't want something that sucks like what do you got and he's like well we got some fenders over here we got some marshals over here that are decent and then we have this one off back here with a mismounted pick guard it's a it's a washburn i was like what'd you say that last one was he's like a washburn. and i was like <laughs> i'll take it <laughs> so i buy this washburn guitar and it's funny how like the universe sometimes provides that like nudge that you need and i like it like kicked me as weird as it sounds and like kicked me back into being stoked about this project and so i hit up luke from the university of ottawa i sent him these photos we had replicated brad washburn's photos from uh, 1937 and so you could see how much ice had disappeared in that time and he's like this is really amazing information like this is really helpful we don't have any imagery like this and i'm like cool like the scientists thought it was worthy I'm like that's that's good and so i give him the updated gps coordinates and he makes me a new map and i was like got a new treasure map and we were like i'm talking about this summer trip and i ask if you know or somehow it comes up like he wants to send one of his phd students with us and like that would be invaluable having a glaciologist with us on this trip like yeah for sure and and so we get introduced and her name's dora and i was like wait your name is dora i was like this is perfect like you're gonna be great <laughs> yeah. like we met, i've never met you but like this is gonna be awesome 
And so we, I do more research and we fly back up to White Horse in August and pick Dora up. Like we've never, we've zoomed a couple times, but she's like, yeah, I'll go camping with you guys on the glacier for seven days. And, and you're not skiing at this point, right? Like this no, is just... it, was, it was really weird to not bring skis at all. It's like just straight focus on the looking for the camera. And you, you kind of build up the same sense of excitement. You're like, yeah, we're going to like find it. We, we have Dora with us. We have this new map. Like, let's go. And then you fly into the valley and you have that same like wind out of your sails. Like this is still just as big. And now you can see all the crevasses and these big meltwater pools and these meltwater channels and these moulins and like uh, so many places for this stuff to have gone. And you're like, yep, still a half-baked idea. <laughs> and we, but, you know, you're there with the crew and you just kind of go about it systematically. We have four of us walking and looking and then a crew of three flying drones, basically taking photos of every inch of the glacier that we can't access. Um, and we looked into things like magnetometers and LIDAR and all these other fancy technology toys and the scientists were like no you should really just take photos and like if even if you were to find it under the ice with um ground penetrating radar like there's no way to access it or even confirm that it's what you're looking for so this is the best option and so we like just start at where the scientists thought this it had ended up and we start kind of spiraling out and we're trying to frame every day we don't find it as like a win like all right that's one last place we have to look and you know that's good for a few days but by day five or six you're like we're kind of running out of places to look and so um i think the second to last day we go up to where they were originally camped thinking we had one theory that they had left it off the glacier just because they were well aware of how glacier glaciers worked and it wouldn't make sense to have left it or maybe it didn't make sense to leave it on the glacier and we go up to kind of where robin and i were on that spring trip and the crew's pretty hard been working or sorry the crew's pretty tired they've been working really hard and we're not seeing anything and i like go up to we're probably past where they were originally camped at this point and i like take out my glass and in the like distance I see this like perfectly square boulder with this big white X quartz X on it. And I was like, could it be that easy? And I'm like, I gotta go check out this this rock guys. And they're like, go knock yourself out. Like <laughs> and so I like cruise up there and I flip over this rock and there's nothing. Damn. Of course. Like and I like sit on this rock and I'm just like kind of pout it or not. I'm just like bummed at Defeated. that sense of failure. Yeah. It's that failure is creeping back in. And I'm like, in, you know what? Robin was right. Like this was an amazing adventure. You did everything you possibly could, or we did everything we possibly could to try to find, find it. And it's like, everybody said it says it was, it, it's in the bottom of a crevasse. Like that stuff's gone. And I like, let this idea go. I like, I'm like, it's time to move on with your life. And as much of it, as sad as it was, it was also this like very cathartic moment. Like, so, okay, 
next project. Let's do something else. And I walked back to camp that night and the way the weather was working, like half the crew had to leave the next day and the other half was going to leave the following day. And it's funny, once I let it go, like I started enjoying myself way more. I like laughed for, for the first time on the trip. Like it became way less obsessed and probably far more fun to be around. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we still have a couple mornings to look. And so we head back out the next morning and Dora is like kind of wandering between these two sections of a moraine that basically a moraine is where debris gets deposited on, deposited on a glacier and forms like a long stripe. And these, the moraine she's looking at is anywhere it's like 10 to 15 feet high but then in this one section it just goes totally flat and then it starts up again and i go i circle back i'm like dora what's up and she's like so this gap in the moraine i think this is where the glacier surged so one percent of the world's glaciers surge and this glacier just happens to be one of those and essentially if a glacier normally moves one foot per day when it surges, it can move up to 45 feet in a single day. And we know this glacier surged twice in the last 85 years. And so Dora's reasoning that like, if this gap in the moraine is from one of the surges, we're looking in the totally wrong place. And we need to be going way further down glacier. And if that doesn't make sense to you, it do did not make sense to me either. I just kind of nodded like totally. It makes sense that like someone smarter than me is smarter than me. That's like how I yeah, take exactly. it. Like I, yeah, that makes I mean, sense, obviously. Yeah. And Dora was way smarter than all of us. And of course, we didn't listen to her. We're like, she's like, so where do you want to go? And I was like, up Glacier, like literally the opposite <laughs> way that she's telling me to go. And she's like, you're an idiot. Um, and so we wander up Glacier. Dora, half the crew leaves, and we start finding some stuff. We start finding these wands that are like, kind of consistent with the washburn era and then we find some nylon fabric and i'm like i don't know if they had nylon and then we find this mountain house bag oh, of like free just more food. trash like pretty there's more yeah, trash like out pretty there sure, pretty sure they did not have mountain house but i'm like looking on the packaging of the mountain house and it has nutritional facts and for whatever reason in the recesses of my brain, I remember the FDA required nutritional facts in the mid nineties. And I also noticed it doesn't have a website on it. So I'm like, okay, this, what this, this mountain house bag is probably from 95, 96. And there's no way they were camped here where we found it. They were probably camped further up glacier where Washburn and Bates were originally camped, which is like five K from where I was. And if it, I'm like, so if this stuff's moved this far in 25 years, in 85 years, that stuff would have moved way further. And all of a sudden, like, what Dora said made sense. I was like, Dora was right. What was I? Why did I not listen to the scientists? Like, she <laughs> is way smarter than all of us. Like, the trash and, is what, like, triggered the epiphany. Exactly. It was like, I'm out here picking up on, like, Blue's Clues level hints where <laughs> Dora's like using science and reasoning to like solve this mystery. And so we like go back to camp and we have like one more day, still another morning to look. And I'm like, guys, we gotta like, or we talk about it. We're like, we gotta like Dora, we gotta listen to Dora. Like last day of the trip, of course, we're like, we gotta listen to Dora. And 
we would wake up really early that next morning and go way further down probably we've been looking somewhere between like around 9k to 13k down down from where they're originally camped we don't start looking for anything until like 15 kilometers like we're way further than we ever thought it would be and i talked to the like we kind of have this meeting before we like sp- go into our like pattern that we spread out walking down the glacier. I'm like, guys, the wrap party is going to be way more fun if we find this. <laughs> and so we walk for like 30 minutes and one of the filmers, Eric Repke, or one of the members of the production team starts, does what I've been waiting for somebody to do the entire trip. He like starts signaling. He's like pointing at the ground. It's like, I think I found something. And they you know, we're making a film. So like the film crew goes over to get the shot of like me walking up to whatever this object Eric found. And in the meantime, they're finding more stuff. They're like, oh my gosh, something's over here. Something's over here. Something's over here. And I'm like, let me, I want to walk over there, like set up the shot. (laughs) And I like walk over there. And the first thing we found was this fuel can, fuel canister that really looked like a piece of cardboard the way it had rusted and been flattened by the glacier and then we found some pieces of clothing some shirts and then this pair of goggles that was like undeniably from the washburn Bates expedition and you know that moment you're like i don't know they want you know back to like this making the movie part it's they're like oh you know interact with the objects and you're like of course you're excited to find these things but there's no emotional attachment there it's like the first thing i wanted to do was give austin one of the filmers this like really big bear hug he'd been on both trips i was like i can't believe this actually worked (laughs) and i don't have a good touchdown dance but i was probably doing something like a touchdown dance or we all were um and I know it's, it was like that moment you have so many different emotions, I think during the course of this entire project. And, you know, when you actually see this gear that they had left 85 years ago, it's like the sense of validation of not necessarily against people that doubted that this would work. Of course, there's like a little of that, a little (laughs) bit of that, but it's like validation against like yourself it's like that self-doubt that you had that whole time and that like like yeah my gut was right that was a good idea that that did make sense um i think that was like the the biggest win of the whole trip yeah and like it's an interesting point in your career like big mountain skier finds historic relic like those relics are probably in a museum right now right or going to be yeah hopefully they uh, will end up in the museum of science in new england or um, a similar facility and yeah it's definitely career-wise i've been looking to pivot to treasure hunting for quite some time this so is this it. Was a great really opportunity to <laughs> um but it was I don't know. I think it speaks to like it's important to like develop interests and hobbies or whatnot beyond skiing. Like skiing's great. Don't get me wrong. That's amazing. But I think 
part of the reason we're successful is like our interests in other things outside of like the mountains and like history, whether it's history or science or glaciology, like it's important to have more than one story in life, you know, to have different threads and not be so focused on a single path or a single journey that you like become one dimensional or I don't know. You can miss out on a lot of good stuff if you're just focused on one thing. Yeah. And just like having an idea, willing it into submission, believing in it and then doing it. Like, even if you never found it, it, it would have been a success. I know you would have struggled with that a little bit, but like you made an idea come to life in like a very 100%. hectic world, which is like insane. Yeah. Taking that spark or that little flicker of an idea and like executing on it is really difficult. And it, I mean, that's across the board, whether it's starting a business or skiing a film line or whatever, like you, that imagination, imagination is one thing. Execution is kind of another. Yeah. It's what, so let me ask you, what was the timeline from you taking this idea seriously to finding it? Um, I think I put the pin on Google Earth sometime in like 2019 and then 20, probably the spring of 21, I started taking it more seriously and then we found it in August 22. That happened pretty quick. So like, I mean, 18 months. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty damn good. But that's, I think it's nice for people to hear that because like some things take like crazy long, but like can also make a lot of things happen in 18 months. It's a long time. Like it's yeah, a short time, but it's a long time. Like, I don't know. And it's just like that. I think the, the biggest thing compared to a lot of other ski trips I've been on, I have like a lot of friends that don't ski and I'll tell them I'm going to this place and they're like, cool like their eyes kind of glaze over. Um, and then I was, I'd tell them about this project, like trying to find this like lost camera that's been missing for 85 years and their eyes would like light up. They'd be like, wow, that's really interesting. And it was that constant feedback where you're like, you're, like, you're right. That this is interesting. This is an idea worth pursuing that just keeps, keeps the whole engine like running or like that your, your enthusiasm fed to like continue chasing this dream no matter like how far-fetched it is and correct me if i'm wrong i mean maybe this is a dora question but like we now know ideally where that was dropped and then where it was found so we have like a beacon of actual data absolutely yeah the their data basically only goes back to the 70s and so this gives them over three more decades of data of like how far this or how this glacier has behaved, um, which is pretty awesome from like a scientific standpoint to like contribute in that sense. Like there's a cool factor of finding the cache and the cameras, but scientifically having more data to help the entire community understand climate change and how glaciers have behaved 
Like that's pretty, I don't know. I would argue that's cooler than that. Yeah. You're going to be like cash. cited in, in like research journals. <laughs> They'll be like yeah, pro no, skier maybe, Griffin yeah, post. Yeah. <laughs> be like, there, there there is supposed to be some sort of journal article so i'll be a good uh resume builder so when does this movie come out does it have a name can we expect it anytime soon or is this just like one big long teaser that's never gonna drop um i really wish i had like better answers to that question <laughs> but most most likely next fall um i have this name board on my, that's been on the side of my fridge on this big whiteboard with different combinations of names and I I'm still waiting for that like <clears throat> strike of inspiration as far as what to call it because there's a lot of different ideas floating around so yep can't give you a name can't give you a time but hopefully you'll you'll recognize it when it comes out <laughs> I mean I think I think we all will but what is next like now what? Like you talk about after, I don't want to put you into a spiral here, but like post-trip like sadness. <laughs> now, how are you going to find that fulfillment in a trip? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> just just going into this season, I mean, first of all, this, this trip, we did we went back one more time in September with a archeologist from the university of Ottawa to recover these items. Um, and so the trips or this project didn't really wrap up until the end of September. And usually you get this long reset during the summer to like get motivated to, you know, plan these next projects. And I didn't really get that this year. So one of the winter kind of like, oh, I just feel like I finished um and that's one side of it and the other side is like you're totally right uh just looking at another straight ski expedition like doesn't have the same um, like well there's nothing lost to find um it doesn't have the same appeal unfortunately but i'm just kind of waiting for that next spark i think you, you have to be patient with those things and let the universe provide them at the at its own pace because know that spark can really come from anywhere it's not like you're gonna sit on your sitting on your computer and have this treasure trove of <laughs> ideas it's you have to be open to you know wherever that idea may come come from and it can come from really weird places sometimes so that's sort of in the the mode i'm in um it was funny after the news break broke i had some people come out of the woodwork be like you know what you should do next you should look for this thing and i'm kind of been like like nah i think i'm I think i'm over that but then like two weeks later you're like wait what was that guy talking about and so there's actually one of those projects that uh i've been doing some more research on that would be in a similar vein well i love it i'm very vocal about me being like super tired of ski porn it <clears throat> just like doesn't do it for me anymore like that's what instagram's for for me yeah like i'll watch a 15 second clip of someone like just slaughter something and i'm like okay great like i'm yeah, cool. very <laughs> into the storytelling it's you know kit delorier did one this uh that came out a couple months ago in the arctic refuge and is like there's a little ski porn in the beginning that gives you that like yep. taste 
And then they went and like sampled how deep the glacial or not deep it really was and like the snowpack. And it was like a full story on what was actually happening. And I'm like, this is what I, I learned something. I got some skiing in and I was like, this to me is the future of ski films. And yeah, I, that I storytelling know. side of, no, I couldn't agree more because you like see it. It's as you said, you like kind of get tricked into learning something. You're like, oh, oh that's <laughs> neat. Like I should care and, about this probably, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just finding those storylines that are compelling and like haven't been told yet. Yeah, it's hard. I can't wait. I can't wait for what's next. I can't wait for this one. I don't. I mean, let's not even talk about what's next. It's like let's get this, whatever we're calling this. Yeah, that's the Washburn that's project. The let's get that out the door first, and then, then we can talk about what's next. Uh, I don't want to keep you too yeah. much longer. I have a couple quick answer questions, and then I'll set you free. Pizza or tacos? Tacos. Playlists or podcasts? Podcasts. I feel like I should say podcasts. <laughs> you can say I don't care. Uh, <laughs> pool or beach? Beach. Fruits or vegetables? Fruits. Text or call? Call. Comedy or horror? Comedy. Waffle or pancake? Waffles. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Two stroke or four stroke? Two. What is the most overplayed shot in ski films? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. The Jackson tram doors opening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would shot say that so many times. Like, can we just pull from stock? Do we really have to do this again? <laughs> no, we got to do it. Say, we so. have to do it. They're sponsoring this film. If you could change one thing about the ski industry, what would it be in your shortest answer possible? Because that could be a whole other podcast. That could be a whole other podcast. Um, accessibility for everybody. Like skiing should not just be for really wealthy people. It should be more avail more accessible for whoever has desire to stand in the cold and <laughs> wants to do it. <laughs> cool. That's all I have. I think that's it. I think we, I think we did it, Griffin. I think we made it to the yeah. end. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This was Thanks great. The good questions. You know, where this is my, I have one more question. Where can people follow you? Get updated. Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, should they say hi to you at the supermarket? Should they DM you? Should they email you? Um, yeah, I'd say at Griff Post, both on Instagram, and Facebook, if anybody uses that still. Um, I'm, it's a fun fact about me. I do very poorly at the grocery store. So please <laughs> just send me a DM. I'm actually pretty good about responding to everything. Um, and was there another question in there? I can't remember. I don't think so. Uh, you can thank your sponsors if you want. You can do that. That's always a oh. good thing. People to thank. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think <laughs> it is important to throw out that scientists understand glaciers that much better because of a beer company, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, and protect our winters. So 
um i have to give them a blatant shout out for sure and of course <laughs> north face smart wall kesley onyx jackson hole i feel like i just threw jackson under the bus though so <laughs> that's okay we still love them we do we can be tired of the shot and still love them yeah uh yeah thank you this was great yeah thanks so much for having me absolutely